journalists need editors. They're supposed to be wiser, usually older, able to give good advice, and able to say, you are barking up the wrong tree. Uh, that's what editors are for. Hello, and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. Today's guest is Marvin Alasky, longtime chief of World Magazine and the author of many books about faith and politics. He's a man with a world of opinions and knowledge. I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing from him. My guest today is Marvin Olasky, longtime editor of World Magazine, the author of more than 20 books, if I count correctly, including some that have been widely read and widely recommended, such as The Tragedy of American Compassion, which we'll be discussing a little bit later, another book related called Compassionate Conservatism. He's written an influential book recently called Reforming Journalism, which we'll talk about soon, just in 2019. He's working and has worked on the topic of abortion, including a book called The Story of Abortion in America. Marvin, it's great to have you on our podcast. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you. Very good to be with you, Dan. Yeah. And so let's go ahead and start right away with faith and journalism. So, you know, this is a podcast about faith and work. And so what we like to do is encourage people who are believers to practice their faith at work. So can you just start us off by telling us what journalism is? If someone feels God called them to journalism, what did they get called to do? Called to go into places or go to places that a lot of readers or listeners haven't been to, meet people and introduce people to readers and viewers uh, whom the readers and viewers would be unlikely to meet otherwise, Uh, maybe occasionally contribute some ideas that the consumer of media might be unlikely to come up with himself. Um, so, yeah, just a variety of, of, th- of, of opportunities to bring people to people, places, things, ideas they otherwise would not meet. I love that definition. Thank you. So uh, that's what a journalist does, we might say, uh, in all circumstances. Uh, how does one lead journalism? Because for many years you edited, you were, you know, you were head, I guess you could say, of World Magazine, a Christian news journal. I think that's, there's some opinion, but it was essentially a news journal, I think you could say. So how does one lead journalism? How would you lead journalists, we might say? You know, you come to observe, whatever you're observing, you come with a certain worldview. No one is neutral or doesn't have any thoughts about something, but you try to proceed inductively. That is, see what's going on, watch, ask questions, and then build a story from the bottom up rather than coming with, um, in a sense, a predetermined message and then just finding a set of facts to fit the message. So you try to you try to see what's actually happening and then work your way up from that. Yeah, that's good. So Marvin, one way you describe this inductive approach is biblical objectivism. And I want to know what that is. And of course, we know that you just said, not everybody, no one can be perfectly objective. That's not conceivable. Nonetheless, you want to have um, some kind of objectivity. How would you describe that? Give you a metaphor here. I'm I'm with you today from afar at my house in Austin, Texas. And uh, when we moved here back in 1997, we learned that this house was built by 
fellow who lived next door. And it's a house on, um, on the side of a hill with Texas exaggeration, it's called a mountain, but it's a hill and we have a good view. It's a tall house and there are four big steel or some other type of metal poles that anchor the house. And I wanted to know, well, if, the, if we get these big winds, is the house gonna blow away? And the builder who happily lived next door was kind enough to actually show me the plans, the blueprints, uh, explain what was in those poles and how strong they were. And uh, he said, no, it's not gonna blow away. And uh, yeah, 25 years later, here I am to attest that he was accurate, at least up to now. Yeah, he gave you the facts, we might say. He, he gave me the facts, I, that was useful to have. Well, uh, I bet you can see where this is going in the metaphor. God is not all that far away from us. I mean, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. Uh, in a sense, I think without boxing him in, in a way he lives next door to us. He's left us some documents. I wouldn't call them blueprints, but he's left us some documents that explain the nature of our house that he met, that he built. You now that's the nature of the world. And so, you know, we can actually learn from the builder, trust him. And I may have my opinion that this house is made of cheese or balloons, but his opinion is much better because he's actually the builder. And that's the way in, in this very basic childish way of mine, I tend to think of um, the nature of this house that God has built, namely the world, the solar system, the universe. And we can learn from the Bible what it's made of, how it began, where it's going. All this is very useful. When you're a journalist, you do come at things from a certain worldview. You may come at things from a materialist worldview. You may come at things from a variety of different uh, religious worldviews. But I believe, and I suspect you do too, upon good evidence and good experience and faith in God, that actually the Bible is God's word to us. Uh, it's the document that explains who we are, why we're here, how this was made, where it's going. And thus we pay careful attention to it. When we approach the facts with that understanding, namely the Bible helps us interpret those facts. It helps us see those facts rightly. It helps us understand what's important and what's not. Then we're going to come much closer to actually describing the way things are than we otherwise would. Uh, it's certainly far from perfect. We are fallible and sinful, but we're going to come closer to an objective view of reality than if we just try to start with some other philosophy or just make it up as we go along. So biblical objectivity is looking hard at the facts, proceeding inductively, but with an overall worldview based on biblical truth and confidence that actually that helps us to understand things better than we otherwise would. Yeah, thank you. So we're agreeing then that we aim for, to be as objective as a correlated reality as possible, but we also know that there's no such thing as total objectivity and I'm sure we agree that there's no such thing as a fact without any interpretation. Right. Just yesterday, I was reading again about Pluto, and you know, people are still lamenting that Pluto was downgraded close to 20 years ago by now. But it has to do with how you interpret the facts. I mean, we know the facts about the size of Pluto and its orbit, and then you have to interpret it, and you interpret as well as possible, and as objectively as possible, given we all have biases, and the Bible corrects those biases well. I see that you're wearing glasses for a long time. I think at least since John Calvin, uh, the Bible has been some, sometimes called, you know, 
corrective lenses or glasses so we can right. read the world correctly. Now, you mentioned Pluto, and I, I haven't thought this through before, but uh, I have two, uh, my wife and I have two of our grandchildren who are staying with us this week. They're four and a half year old twins. And we were doing a puzzle this morning, a solar system puzzle. And it has the sun, it has the earth, Mars, Venus. And, and I just kept looking, you know, going out, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Where's Pluto? No Pluto. No it's Pluto been downgraded. There, which, which, which seems very sad to me because I certainly grew up in Pluto. Now, if I were to claim, and here's, here's where this idea of biblical objectivity really helps us to understand when to take a particular position on things and when not to. If I were to claim that the Bible tells me that there are nine planets in the solar system, including Pluto, this is biblical truth, and anyone who doesn't agree with Pluto, I'm going to excommunicate from my church, that would be overusing the Bible. Yeah, well, and, definitely. And, and there's sometimes a tendency, not so far as Pluto, but in other things, sometimes yes. among fundamentalists, there's a tendency to overuse the Bible. Among liberal theologians, there's a tendency to underuse the Bible and say or to use big principles Bible. and not particulars. Exactly. You know, exactly. Love and just fill in love according to whatever your ideology is. Right. So here's what we try to teach our reporters. And this is another metaphor because World Business Headquarters are in Asheville, North Carolina. And 50 miles west of Asheville, there's some great whitewater rapids, or great for me. Uh, that is things I can I can survive doing. There are six classes of rapids. Class six basically is a waterfall. You go over, you're going to die. Class one is gently down the stream. They've become progressively more difficult. There are some things where the Bible is very, very clear, and those are class one rapids. For example, uh, you shall not murder. Uh, that's a class one rapid. There is no group that I know of organized Christians for murder. Now, you know, we can inter this, of course, can be twisted in certain ways. Well, who is a person? Who can we kill? Who can't we kill? But basically, the understanding is, and our reporters can go out with this understanding, that if they see a murder, they don't have to balance it with pro-murder and anti-murder people. <laughs> right, right. Because okay? right. that's the Bible's very clear on. On the other hand, if there's a discussion of whether Pluto's a planet or not, then basically, they should not state there's a biblical position on that. They should right. be balanced. The pro-Pluto, the, pro the anti-Pluto people, quote them equally, and off we go. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, yes, let me, I, there's something you said. We, I didn't plan to ask you this question, but I think you're implying, tell me if you are not, that it's possible to use the Bible to then read the world. So here's just a simple example I used recently in a sermon. I said, people sometimes think we should live for ourselves, live for our pleasure, etc. But if you simply pay attention to your own body, you know that's not exactly true. You get hints, at least, that that's not exactly true. So, for example, if you're hungry and you eat, one big piece of pizza that tastes delicious. But if you eat three big pieces of pizza, you become miserable. God made it, made your body so that you will become miserable if you just stuff yourself with food. Or, or differently, if I'm really hungry and I want to, I don't know, have some ice cream, first prize is a chocolate milkshake. Second prize is two chocolate milkshakes. Because the second one doesn't taste nearly as good as the first because we're sated. And, and God seems to have put into this world principles like how our body works that teach us don't live for yourself. And unless I'm way off, you can comment, but I think journalists, Christian journalists would try to, you know, see things in the world that align with God's principles vaguely along those lines. Is that close to what you would say about journalists and how they use their faith? 
Yeah, that's that's close. Uh, I'll try out another new thought here. Okay. okay. At least at least new for me to to express this. Well, okay. it's not new for me that, that dogs are better than cats. <laughs> okay. I, don't I, don't, I don't have a. We might call that an opinion. That. I agree with yeah, your opinion, but anyway. that's my opinion. But when it comes to food, cats are better than dogs. Okay, dogs will just eat and eat and eat. You know, you you yes. you forget you you forget that you've already fed the dog. You put other food in, and he'll eat that too, and he'll keep eating. As he'll just keep eating. Cats, again, I've never had a cat, so I'm just basing this on on the literature. Cats self-regulate. Uh, they won't just eat and eat and eat. So, in that sense, human beings, we hope, or at least Christians, are more like cats than dogs. Uh, we we should self-regulate when it comes to pizza or chocolate milkshakes. The ten the tendency. In, in life in many ways. Well, you've written about work and you know that work is good, work for work without ever having any recreation or ever paying attention to your family or doing anything else, uh, that's not good. And very often we do not, well, we do not self-regulate well with work. Some people probably work too much for their own good. Uh, some people, maybe a lot of people work less and want to get away with doing less than God has called them to do. Yeah, understanding our, our telos, our purpose, what works well, the right quantity as well as the right quality is really important in life. And in this sense, and in this sense only, I'll give cats a nod over dogs. Mm, yeah, thank you. Um, I do want to ask one, run, one, uh, one idea by you. I was reading the New York Times the other day, and uh, they were talking about something. And they said, this, this line appeared, all true medical experts agree. Uh-huh. Right. And I thought to myself, uh, there are a tremendous number of medical, medical experts who disagree with what you just said. But by putting the word true in, they just said, uh, well, anybody who doesn't take this position is not a true expert, no matter where, where they went to medical school, no matter what their credentials are. Journalists sneak their biases in a lot uh, through no true expert, no true scholar, whatever they would, they would say. And they thereby dismiss anybody who dares to disagree with them. Two questions related to this. How can Christians keep from making similar mistakes? Anybody who disagrees with us is just wrong. You've kind of spoken that a little. And, and also for our consumers of news, do you have any suggestions about how to tell if uh, you're reading a biased source um, and they, they, they're claiming objectivism but, or, or objectivity and they're not objective? Those are two different questions. You can answer one of them or both of them. Let me let me uh, deal with the with the second, and then I'll probably have forgotten the first. You know, okay. ask it again. There, there's no way in a subject you know nothing about that you can really tell for sure whether the journalist is telling the truth or lying, okay. whether it's accurate or not. This used to be called in the 19th century Afghanistanism, or at least British journalists used that term, because the idea was that you could write since no one or very few people from England had been in Afghanistan, you could write just about anything you wanted. And people would believe you. There's a spectrum in a sense. Afghanistanism, let's say, on one side, and baseball box scores on the other. Baseball, you can very quickly learn who's reliable and who's not. If you watch a baseball game and then you read a story the next day that misses some important things, you know that very quickly. Often we don't know. So I think you have to judge publications more. And that's why it's that's why it's hard now that many people are, are, are freelancers on Substack and so forth, there are good things about that, but there are also bad things. They usually haven't been edited. You don't know whether to trust them or not. But I believe strongly in, in getting the sense of the publication by finding a story about which you know something. Yes. 
And then you can read it and see, aha, does this publication get things right? And then that'll tell you that, well, maybe the next story you read will also be right. You start with what you know, where you have some basis of judgment, and then you proceed to what you don't know. Now, what was your first question? No, first of all, that's just so important that I almost don't want to let it slide by moving on to another question. The other question, that's just, let's just leave it at that because it's so good and so important that we, um, we hear a very concrete piece of advice, and that is ask questions about the, the publication, whether it's a journal or a newspaper or whatever it is, an internet site in general, and you do that best by reading about a topic which you know a fair amount about, and then you can discern whether somebody's reliable. I, I give the same advice on reading theologians or Bible exposition for what it's worth. What's the role of a journalist? And I'm just going to quote you to yourself. You wrote this book, Reforming Journalism, and said that one of the main jobs of journalists is to check corruption and to prevent tyranny. And you also said that today that maybe has gotten more difficult because our definition of tyranny keeps changing and we've lost what true tyranny is. I'm going to quote one line from your book, which I just loved, from page five. The fact that many people are now writing about oppression and the villains were external influences such as corporations, churches, schools, guns, or meat or something, which I just... I thought that was hilarious. In other words, almost anything can be oppressive today, and if almost anything is oppressive, then there's a danger that the real calling of journalism, as you defined it, can be eclipsed. The real calling is to recognize genuine corruption, genuine tyranny, not what, what someone's bothered by at the moment. Would you explain the, the role of journalism regarding tyranny, corruption, and oppression? Well, yeah, I will... This, this is a vast generalization, but yeah, sure. let me just say that there are, there are three phases. I wrote a book on, on American journalism history um, and really saw there were three phases in the way that journalists tended to examine in, a, um, uh, in an investigative way the world around them. The first phase, you see this in colonial America up until, well, 1735, there was a famous trial uh, but it really continued in many ways up until the late 18th century. I'm, I call this the, uh, the, the royal story or the official story. Mm -hmm. The official story is what the, the king, the, the royal governor uh, would tell you what it was. And the job of journalists was to make the king or royal governor look good. And that was the case in China, you point out as well, for hundreds yeah. of years. Yeah. Yeah, and, and China, sadly, is now back to the official story. There was a brief period where they seemed to be having a little bit more freedom, but that's, that's gone now. So the official story basically is doing public relations for whoever's in charge. Mm -hmm. You start to see in 1735 with a, uh, a journalist in New York named John Peter Zenger is the first person who goes on trial, really, for emphasizing the corruption story, namely the royal governor of New York, William Cosby, was a sheep stealer. Uh, he also stole land from Indians. He was generally a nasty guy. And John Peter Zenger in his newspaper articles basically saying that. And Cosby, of course, threw Zenger into jail. And then there was a trial. And the trial basically should have been open and shut. I mean, because British law at that time was the greater the truth, the greater the libel. In other words, if you are closer to the facts, but they are embarrassing facts for the king of royal governor, and you tell that that's even worse than if you made something up. And truth was no defense at all. The jury became a runaway jury. 
uh, the jury disregarded British law and said, Zenger's telling the truth. Uh, William Cosby is a bad guy, and we're not going to keep Zenger in jail. And Zenger went free, and Governor Cosby then, wanting to avoid a revolution, let him be. And he went on and kept editing the paper. So that's the beginning, really, of the corruption story taking over from the official story. And then journalists really, until the late 19th century, uh, from, let's say, about the American Revolution through the late 19th century, saw their job as exposing corruption. That is, they weren't supposed to be, you know, great professors uh, looking at the big picture. They proceeded inductively rather than deductively. So they said, okay, the best we can do, we can be helpful here by pointing out a problem here, a problem there. We're not going to make a huge systemic analysis. We're going, to, we're going to try to do stuff that's in our own neighborhood, things we can see, and go from there. And then maybe people will put together the pieces, but that's beyond what we can do successfully. Mm -hmm, right. The late 19th century, and then going bigger in the 20th century, and probably even bigger now, you have a takeover. Instead of the corruption story, you have the oppression story. The job of the journalist is to expose systemic oppression. Go big, get people riled up over big stuff. You know, in many ways, since so many local newspapers have gone out of business or cut down their staffs, there's very little local reporting that's going on. But reporters are waxing eloquent about the big oppression of whether it's church or capitalism or this or that, or if they're vegetarians, meat. You know, all these are oppressive things. Seriously, about meat, uh, uh, Horace Greeley uh, and his wife, Mary Greeley, thought that eating meat was a problem. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and maybe they were right. Anyway, my dog is named Greeley, by the way, after oh, Horace Greeley. Yeah. So I feel, I feel, because he likes meat and doesn't get it all that often. But anyway, this was uh, Horace Greeley, in a sense, was the first person who started suggesting the oppression story. And perhaps my dog, Greeley, occasionally feels oppressed, but he mostly complains about corruption. <laughs> um, so let me just pick up on a little thread in the middle between there. So, you know, obviously journalists do things like cover wars. And, yes. you know, there are a lot of different narratives possible right now. At this moment that we're talking, there's a war between Russian invaders and Ukrainian defenders. Of course, the Russian press says uh, we're stopping Nazis in Ukraine, which is, you know, we would say that's preposterous. On the other hand, we do have other issues. I mean, I've read a fair number of accounts of World War II. And one question is, when did World War II start? You know, one answer is 1935, another answer is 1937, another answer is 1939, 1941. What was it all about? And I mean, there are revisionists who say, look, it's not, it's not just about their grab for power, the Axis people, forces grabbing for power. They'd been shut off from resources and industrial expansion, and they thought they were defending their rights and so forth. So there is, um, you know, there are facts and there are interpretations, and, and the boundary between them can be very difficult to draw. I mean, I've as you read varying accounts of World War II, for example, how does a journalist, this is my last question for you about journalism, and we're going to switch to something else, but can you guide a young journalist who thinks they're trying to report the facts, but then the more they read, the more they study, they think, oh, this story is so much more complex, and there's so more, many more valid perspectives on this than I realized at first. I would not recommend to college students that they major in journalism. Okay. And this is college students who want to be journalists. Yes, right. I think they should take several courses in journalism. But they should study history, maybe. They should they should major in history, is yeah. what I is my recommendation. Yeah. And and really learn history. I mean, even here in mentioning World War II, I mean you give various dates for the beginning of World War II. And I 
I know the particular events that were connected with those dates, like right. the German, the Nazi moving into the Ruhr, and then, and, and then Austria. The Japanese and, invading uh, China, yeah, well, that's, course, that's which we forget about. Like it didn't happen sometime yeah, when we write you, our history. That, that's right. That, that um, even those particular dates that you gave are all, and I'm not accusing you of this, but they're, I mean, because those are the dates I would first give. But they're all Eurocentric dates in that sense. Yeah, well, except for China, I meant to. Well, that's for China. China. There you have what? And it was in 1931 that the uh, the Japanese invaded Manchuria. Yeah, and, and then, then and then, you know, and then Shanghai and the 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 rape of Nanking and all that. Yeah. So that's probably where it began. You could also say that in a way, World War II uh, began. And you shouldn't call it World War II. It should be one world war that began in 1914. Right. Yeah. And there was a there was an armistice in between. There was a, there was never, a lull. It was a lull. Right. So anyway, yeah, no, so that's so so getting to the larger point, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are all these gradations. It's really hard. And that's why I would say, having been an editor for a long time, that journalists need editors. Editors are supposed to be not making a theological point here, but the editors, in a sense, are supposed to be the equivalent of elders. They're supposed to be wiser, usually older, able to give good advice and able to say you are to continue with my dog stories, you are barking up the wrong tree. Uh, that's what editors are for. And since I was the editor in chief, I didn't have someone editing my stuff except for my wife. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was always my editor. And she would tell me sometimes that I was barking or meowing up the right. wrong tree. Yeah, right. Uh, about 10 days ago, you and I had a conversation about what I think we agree is one of the more egregious errors. I said no more about journalism, but I one more. Uh, one of the more egregious issues in journalism today, which is reporting that says, if we don't, you know, cut our carbon footprint and reduce our use of oil by 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it depends, we're headed for ruination. And, you know, you and I are both in favor of creation care, for sure. But this kind of uh, histrionic, hyperbolic declarations. We have eight years, 10 years, 15 years to save the planet by doing the following simple things, which is so far from reality. I, I guess I want to ask you again, can you help us, can you help a consumer of the news and or speak to someone who wants to be a truth teller in this world, whether a journalist or other forms of truth telling, teaching, how to, over, how to see, how to recognize and overcome this hyperbolic excitement and exaggeration that's meant to whip up public sentiment in a direction that's not factually based. Yeah, that's that's hard when you have everyone pushing in this way. And if you if you indicate any caution about some of these uh, huge predictions, then you are what a, a, a climate change denier or something like that. So so that's hard. You have to be willing to stand up to uh, to, to some heat. Let's say ba basic posture is, well, we know that the world will come to an end someday. We don't know when. But up until then, I think one of the one of the sayings uh, that I think our world reporters uh, probably heard often from me is, you know, don't uh, don't believe, don't don't worry that the sky is falling. God holds up the sky, and that basically I think is true. Given every 100 predictions of total disaster, maybe one of them comes true, and even then it's not total. Uh, so be wary of any gross generalizations uh, that the sky is falling and all that. And I'd say in general, be, be counter-cyclical. In other words- um, What does that mean? Yes, please tell us. Here's, here's an example that um, in 1992, a lot of my fellow pro-lifers were very disappointed when the Supreme Court, which looked like it would overturn Roe v. Wade, did not mm -hmm. uh, and just maintained it. 
with a, a switch by Justice Kennedy, uh, who thus got the nickname Flipper. I would I was telling people at that point, well, it's not it's not the end of the world. Uh, there are so many things we can do to to save unborn lives. There are, mm-hmm. don't you know don't don't think this is this is down the drain. That was my tendency then. I mean, my tendency now. I am hoping. I don't know when this is. When will this actually run? On the oh, uh, I'm not sure. Three months, maybe two months, six weeks. Yeah. Well, really. So by the time this runs, the we will know what's happened in the Dobbs case concerning the yeah. overturn of Roe v. Wade. Okay. So just for the record, I'll say, you know, I'm I'm saying this well beforehand, and anticipating, maybe hoping and praying that actually Roe v. Wade is overturned. But that's not uh, that's not a, a cause for such enormous enormous exuberance. I, I tweeted something on this yesterday and got a lot of, as you do on, on Twitter, mm-hmm. reaction saying, well, why would it be irrational exuberance to, to celebrate? Well, because uh, there are lots of places where abortion will still be legal. And people can drive or fly women, to get an abortion. Right? A lot of places women will just, will just get abortion pills. In a blue city like Austin, a blue city in a red state, I will be enormously surprised if there's a jury at some point, if an abortionist does an abortion, a jury, actually 12 people actually finding the abortionist guilty in a city like Austin. So that's that's what I mean. Yeah, don't exactly. uh, don't get too high. Don't get too low. People who the people in the audience who are Red Sox fans will, I think, understand this. I'm a 19th century Red Sox. Excuse me. I'm not that old. I'm a 20th <laughs> century Red Sox fan. Right. Which means I expect the Red Sox to lose at, at the end. Yes. Playing valiantly, coming close, but losing. That's a 20th century Red Sox fan. A 21st century Red Sox fan expects the Red Sox to win. Right. Uh, we had an intern who was a 21st century Red Sox fan living with us in 2018 when the Red Sox, in fact, did have a wonderful season and went all the way and won the World Series. But I would say basically, biblically, we should be neither 21st century nor 20th century Red Sox fans. I could make a really, you know, one of those really bad jokes and say, of course, that baseball was there right, right at the start because it's, the you know, in the beginning. Oh, no, please don't that, make you know that, that joke. Don't make that yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I won't, I won't go that. I won't go there. But uh, anyway, no, we, we just got to try to be level-headed. Things go on. The uh, people who listen to this will know what the Supreme Court has done. But uh, the one person was writing to me, well, why, why shouldn't we celebrate victory over the Nazis in World War II? And I, I getting into the into the the play of of uh, of Twitter, I could say, well, no, this if the Supreme Court doesn't, if if the Alito decision actually stands, this is like the British victory in North Africa in 1942. Right. It's a partial, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a victory that's good, yeah, but a lot more to do. So anyway, that's my tendency to try to maintain an evil an even keel, not not in a stoic way, but you know, don't don't get too excited. Don't get too depressed. Yeah. So just to illustrate, so first of all, I want to say, make it really clear to anybody who got upset with me, I'm very much in favor of creation care. I just don't think we can do anything in the next eight years to save or destroy the planet. Right. So it'll, it'll take 200 years, for, at least high estimate is 800 years for the CO2 that's currently in the atmosphere to wash out. So even if we do everything perfectly right now, most estimates say it'll be 2080 till we see any changes occur. Right. So let's not get hyper. You know, we're going to save the planet in five years and then nothing happens. Of course nothing's going to happen because the science says it's going to take a long time and we have to take the long view, as you say. And just for the record, also in Missouri, 
since I've lived here about 30 years, the abortion rate, apart from any laws being passed, went from around 24% to around 7%. Mm -hmm. That's just gentle persuasion, gentle conversations, caring for mothers' difficult pregnancies, and slowly persuading people that an unborn child is a human being who deserves to be protected. No laws were passed, but you know it was reduced by 70% or so. After the break, Marvin will define what conservatism means, why he helped advance the concept of compassionate conservatism for decades. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is a coalition of believers who hold the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. What all that means is we care about the church, we care about truth, and work hard to preserve and advance it every day. Connect with our broadcast, podcast, publishing, internet, and event platforms at workingwithdan.org. Thank you for your prayerful and financial support of the Alliance. Well, let me switch over to compassionate conservatism, if I can, which you've written about a couple times. So first of all, what is conservatism? Right now, it's sometimes identified with right-wing politics or nationalism or being a Republican maybe strong defense or pro-business or pro-life or anti-immigration. There's all kinds of uh, current views of what a conservative is, but what is a conservative? Then we'll talk about compassionate conservatives in a minute. What's a conservative in your opinion? Or maybe historical perspective on the question, what is a conservative? Yeah, historical perspective. I mean, we could talk about Edmund Burke and all and all those mm -hmm. people, but um, I, I read... Um, a long time ago, just about a place, a big open area, and the designers wanted to figure out where, where they should put a path uh, going across this open area. And rather than just assuming that they knew the best way, they let it go for a while without, without a path and saw which way people walked. And then they say, oh, okay, this is, this is, the, this is what people are using. That's basically a conservative. You, you, go, you go into a problem seeing, well, how have people dealt with it? And just because we're living now and they lived 50 years ago, maybe they are not entirely stupid. Maybe we can learn something from them. So, I mean, that without getting into the realms of political theory and all that, I mean, that I think is the simplest definition of a conservative. You actually have a sense of history and pay some attention to what people have done, how people have tried to work out a particular problem. Now you go to... to uh, conservative right now, well, not right now, you go to conservative, let's say 30 years ago, and there was a sense of small government versus big government and decentralize, which, you know, from my limited experience in Washington, uh, uh, seemed and seems like a good idea to me. I once spent a day just uh, walking around with one US senator in one day in eight hours, he had 35 different meetings to go to. I don't understand how you can how you have time to think about anything. You're just right. sort of bobbing around. Mm -hmm. So much better to decentralize, do things on state levels, do things on local level. That's what conservative was. Mm -hmm. Compassionate conservative was the idea that that people on the, on the left had taken the word compassion, and instead of using it the way it's used biblically, uh, rachum, uh, suffering with. I mean, rachum is the, the root is womb, mm -hmm. and so. You have the idea of the close connection of a mother and her unborn child. Well, that's compassion. That's that's where the word compassion comes from. Uh, you know Greek. I don't. Uh, 
I may be mispronouncing it, but uh, splanchnoi, which is translated as bowels of yearning or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, compassion, the, the, the classic definition is suffering with, compassion, suffering with another, not just uh, passing not, not, that. Not giving them money, but, but actually getting in. I mean, in your book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, you stress, I think, beautifully that uh, true compassion doesn't just give somebody a handout. Right. It, it knows, it, you get to know the person, you know what their needs are, how hardworking they are, what abilities they have. Right. And you and you know them at length. You get involved right. with them for a long period of time. You know, you 19th century did that really well. I love that portion of your book. Yeah. That the, the focus was on getting to know the person, not just giving right. them something. Right. Yeah. Not just throw money at, at problems if that makes right. it go away. Yep. Right. So can I ask you about uh, your chapter? I, I warned you, I know you wrote this 20 some years ago, but right. in, in this chapter, The Seven Marks of, uh, of Compassion, I'm calling upon your memory here. You okay. you say A B C D E F G affiliation, bonding, getting to know somebody, suffering with them, categorization. What's their what's the status of their need? I won't explain them. I'll let you do it. Discernment, employment, freedom, and God. That's your A B C D E F G. Freelance with us. How is how does that get us to truly compassionate conservatism? That A B C D E F G whatever parts of it you want to address. Yeah, just going through that, I'm going down memory lane here. Yeah, affiliation, uh, families are important, marriage is important, uh, as opposed to just being a, a rolling stone, totally separate. So you look for family connections and you you, you try to um, help those connections be continuing or, or if the connections are broken, try to try to help them. If, if there aren't the connections, then bonding, uh, yeah, this one-to-one -one connection between a person who needs help and a and and a potential helper. Categorization. The 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 terms from the 19th century. If if this if at some point this new edition of this book, I probably have to explain it more because they use a term called worthy and unworthy. The worthy right. poor and the unworthy poor. Mm -hmm. And people tend to react to that and say, "What are you saying that someone is not worthy of being helped?" No, their understanding was that everyone is worthy of being helped. But if you have a limited amount of time and money, right. then you want to help someone who's actually going to try to get out of it. In other words, you can just you can spend a lot of time with a person who really, and it sounds strange, a person who is so used to being homeless, the person doesn't really want a home. Well, you, you, and if I may just jump in, you sure, talk. Please. You have two phrases. One is needing needing work rather than relief. And you also talk uh, in the past. You cite people who mentioned confirmed intemperance—that is to say, mm -hmm. alcohol abuse. Right. Uh, if resources are finite, as you say, you may say, you know, we may not help a person who is simply going to stick with their alcoholism in a world of limited resources. Try right. to help the person who needs work and seems to be ready to make the most of it. Right. And yeah, they they taught you know don't just jump to conclusions. Uh, and that's why if a person came to a, a homeless shelter, assuming he wasn't an axe murderer, they would hand him an axe and say, here, <laughs> able-bodied, you can, can you chop wood for a while and thus show your willingness to work? There are some groups today in cities that are doing something similar. I'm just learning about this with, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of cities are just such a mess on the streets and they're actually 
you know, giving them plastic bags and say, you know, go out and collect trash and, and bring it back here and, and, you know, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pay, pay you, you something. Yeah. yeah. So, so this was a work test just to see if a person is willing to, uh, to work. Then you had discernment. Uh, and that was basically the idea that you just can't have one size fits all. You have to try to know the individual and, and see what particularly is going to help that person. Employment, namely uh, uh, work works. It's important to to not just uh, be given stuff. You have to be willing to contribute. Freedom, you have to be able to contribute in various ways. That is, you there should not be just one criterion. You have to be flexible and give people the opportunity to uh, to work. Uh, and I could go more into that, but it would be a while. And then and then, of course, most important here is, gee, God, what uh, I did lots and lots of interviews with uh, with homeless guys in the 1990s. I'm getting back into that a little bit now. And uh, what I found out back then is the, the successful transitions from homelessness were almost always people who, who had come to a belief in God and thought they had some purpose in life besides just uh, living from, from one meal to the next and sleeping on the streets. So, yeah, those are the basic criteria that they used. And I think there are ways they can be applied today. Yeah, thank you. I had, you know what, I was listening to you too much and I lost my place. In, in my uh, book, you have this you have this fascinating line set of uh, lines from a uh, from an older document that was written more than a hundred years ago, and you say among other things that mercy acts of mercy are, are practiced this way to give only in small quantities in proportion to the immediate need, and less than might be procured by labor, except in cases of sickness. So that's rewarding people for working. You give them money, but you make sure they would get more if they worked on their own. That's, of course, not always possible, right? but that's the ideal. Yeah, that is, that is the ideal. And uh, no, I've, I've seen this work of uh, God has changed some hearts sometimes uh, uh, in, in some small ways. I'm, I may have contributed to that a couple of times, but I've, but I've seen basically trying to put into practice that uh, you, re- you really want to help a person see that work is important and the person can do better by working than by not. And just a lot of people have gotten so used over the years to just having stuff given to them. And that, and that gives them, uh, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back to dogs and cats again. I mean, the, the basic Christian understanding, as you know, is that we're made in God's image. Uh, we're not animals. I don't expect much from, from uh, my dog Greeley except to entertain me in certain ways. And we go on walks and so forth. I mean, I, I try to do 10,000 steps a day. I think I try to get him to do about a million steps a day because he's a very small dog or weighs about 12 pounds. Yeah, I feel I have done my job with really if I walk him and I put some food in his bowl. I don't expect him to, to sit at a computer and write. I don't expect him to build anything for me. I'm fine with him except during our hour of walk just to sort of lie around. Uh, but that's Greeley's a dog. Human beings are not dogs. Uh, we are we are made in God's image. We are capable of working, and we should be helped to see the importance of doing that. But what am I doing? I am talking about work to the person who writes the books <laughs> no. on work. <laughs> well, so. that's fine. Uh, that, that's our theme is faith and work. Um, so another aspect, you, can, you know, you've talked about compassion a lot, two books and lots of lots of other pieces. And you also write about abortion a lot. Do you see abortion as a um, as a compassion issue? Do they connect in that way? Is that a is is that does that connect? Are they connect to each other as a compassion issue, as a 
bedrock Christian conviction, love your neighbors yourself, take care of the poor and defenseless. Who's more defenseless than an unborn baby, right? How do these two ongoing interests of yours intersect? Well, let me just, yeah, first, this, this whole thing with, of, of compassion. Uh, and you ask, okay, about the, the mother and her unborn child. Well, again, you go, you go back to the, to the Hebrew, rachum, womb. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the classic definition of compassion, that for you are t- tied together with this child in God's uh, grace and God's kindness, setting things up that way, and you are totally connected. Uh, in every way, and whatever you whatever you do or eat or drink, you have to think, okay, how is this going to affect this baby? Uh, so, I mean, that's the ultimate example of, of compassion. I suppose the ultimate example of compassion is Christ coming to yes, earth. Yes, of course. Die right. for us. Mm-hmm. The ultimate human example of compassion yes. is the mother and a child. Now, what's interesting about this is that people on the on the um, abortion side will say, I mean, abortionists will say, well, I am being compassionate to this mother mother. Mm -hmm. uh, by helping her, but well, not by helping her, by aborting her child. I am freeing her. Well, I mean, that's not only not a biblical definition of compassion, but just in terms of the basic facts, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've talked with enough people and I've read enough examples of of what today, uh, you know, we call call post-abortion syndrome to know that it's not compassionate to have to to convince a mom to to be complicit in killing her child. It's 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 obviously not good not good for the child, and thus it's important for doctors to be able to see and realize that they have two patients, not one. Yes, and yes. that their compassion is trying to help both patients and not just one. And well, we might um, mention the father sometimes um, who well, has a child aborted without. His knowledge, although to be, you know, to be, you and I both know that fathers are often complicit by saying, "Hey, I'm not going to help you with this baby. You better take care of this," and so on. But there are also fathers who are excluded from from the situation. They would like to have a they they want to be a father, and that child is taken away. Yeah, the um, in this in this book on abortion, the, the story of abortion America that'll be coming out right at the beginning of next year. I have a co-author, a, a young woman who's interviewed lots of lots of pregnant women who were not surprised by joy to be pregnant right, right. Uh, and she's heard at times that um, their boyfriend is actually pressuring them to abort right and one one Texas woman really liked the Texas law that basically set a limit of six weeks and is still in effect uh, at least for the time being because once she got past that, she would be free from the pressure of her boyfriend to abort. Right. So the the idea that that all women are yearning for abortion freedom just uh again it's not it's it, it doesn't make sense biblically and it doesn't make sense factually in terms of just observations of of people who actually take the time to listen. Yes, exactly. It's it's a very complex uh, story, no doubt about it. So um, Marvin, we're going to go to the lightning round. Oh boy. Oh boy. Now, the rules for the lightning round is if you answer for more than 59 seconds, a hole opens up underneath your chair. Okay. So question number one, if you could do anything for a year and logistics, you know, travel, passports, money, nothing's an object. You can just do anything you want for a year. What would you do? 
I would probably get tired of it after a while, but I would go to places I've never been. Okay, yes. I think I am at 76 countries, but who's but who's counting? Yes. And yet there are there are 130 others. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I would just like to visit lots of places. That dovetails nicely with your first answer that you want to take, a journalist takes readers to places they will never go and they'll meet people they would never meet. That's I love it. Uh, question number two, if there is a book, show, movie, documentary, anything that tells us what it's really like to be a journalist, what is it? Well, the, the best movie, I think, is uh, to be an investigative journalist is Spotlight. Yes. Uh, which actually won an Academy Award best, best film. And uh, that's the story about the, the exposure of, well, particularly here in, in, in Boston, the, uh, the Catholic Church and, uh, and the terrible things that happened. So that, that gives a sense of the, the excitement and, and purpose of it. Yeah. If you could celebrate anything in five years, what would it be? What would you most like to celebrate in five years? Five, in five years, my 51st anniversary. Okay, good. All right, I yeah. love it. Uh, last question. Well, if you had... let me say, that's, that's personal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, As a journalist, I would, maybe. Yeah, that, that's personal. I, I, would, I would like the, the number of, of unborn children who are killed to be much, 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 much smaller. Yeah. If you had 60 seconds on an elevator with someone who said, hey, aren't you Marvin Alasky? Can you tell me how I want to be a journalist? Give me your number one and two tips about being a godly journalist. What would you say? Uh, be curious. Uh, read the Bible. Uh, be willing to rewrite and rewrite again. Mm. Three tips. That's, that's terrific. Thank you so much. Marvin, it's been a delight to have you on this podcast. I appreciate your wisdom and all of your contributions to the world of literature. I put the world, word world in there because you were the editor-in-chief for so many years. I do want to recommend one of your relatively recent books, just a, three years old by now, Reforming Journalism. Thank you for that fascinating book. And if you care about compassionate conservatism, a couple books I recommend. But you've written a great number of books, which I do recommend to our listeners who have interest in these topics. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Dan. We're thankful for today's guest and also extend special thanks to our sponsor, the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. Please check out their site, Reformation 21. That's the principal host of this podcast. If you want to put your faith to work and change your corner of the world, visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Look for faithandworkstl.org. That's one word. We'll help you start a cohort with like-minded believers who also want to practice their faith at work. This podcast is donor supported. To keep us going, please donate on our website. Maybe more importantly, you can support us by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, by liking us, by posting us on your favorite platform or go old school and tell a friend.